Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means if you're a fan of the live feeds on YouTube or Odyssey or Rumble or whatever, you don't get that today. This is an audio-only show like old school because, well, the expert counsel's not all available to uh, to join up at 10 a.m. in the morning uh, to do a show like this live. It's a lot of moving parts to try to put together in one place. So what we do, you guys send me your questions. I send them to the expert council. The expert council records them at their leisure, returns them to me when they're not biking, and I piece them together for you in a show like this, the Monster Show of the Week. That's what we say. It's Friday, 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 just like monster trucks. Anyway, I have a great lineup of the expert council for you this week. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, I got a twofer from uh, Dr. Paul himself. The greater government power, the greater society's division. I agree with that. The bigger government equals a more divided society. Dr. Paul also talks about defending America is not done by provoking nuclear war, which seems to be what our idiots in power are doing right now. Chris Rossini talks about government's role. It is supposed to be protecting freedom, not promoting ideology. But that is exactly what the left has always seen government as their means of enforcing their ideology upon others. Tim the Tool Man Cook has a segment on the difference between conventional and inverter generators and when you need an inverter generator. Nicole Sauce will talk about finding your personal tribe. Amy Dingman will talk about how some parents ask homeschooling advice only to look for problems versus accepting solutions. Jeff Lawton has one on developing head pressure for dam water on very flat land. Given the segment that Sean Mills did last week on moving water across great distances, I thought this has been an interesting lineup. Doc Bones will talk about the reality of dealing with earthquake aftermath. And I have a segment called The New MSM Narrative, that's mainstream media for those under a rock, on COVID. We, meaning us, were right for the wrong reasons. You're going to start hearing this more and more, more versions thereof, but this is the whole thing. Like, okay, you guys are right about all this shit, but you should have trusted us anyway. And you're going to hear more and more of it as this narrative continues to fall apart. We'll talk about the lesson we take from that, because what they say doesn't mean anything anymore. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let me remind you guys of some stuff that's going on that you want to know about. The Self-Reliance Festival is happening in Camden, Tennessee at SOE Tactical Gear again. This is being run by the awesome Nicole Awesome Sauce, who you will hear from today, and John Willis of SOE. It will be March 25th and 26th in Camden. There's a ton going on this year. Some really great speakers, including Paul Wheaton, Bear Independent, John Willis himself, Nicole Sauce herself, Dana McClendon from Tactical Response, and our own Sean Mills, and many more. Lots of hands-on demonstrations and things like that. It's worth going just to check out the system that John has set up for himself alone. It's pretty awesome. Wish I could be there. I can't make all of them, but you can make this one. Uh, you can check out the show notes today for a link to learn more about it. Again, Self-Reliance Festival, March 25 and 26 in Camden, Tennessee. Next up today... 
want to remind you also, because this is going to be the last time I kind of talk about it on air for a while, I'm going to be bringing you something new starting next week from Paul Wheaton. Alan Booker's Amazing Plant Genetics Seminar. Many of you guys have gotten this. I haven't heard a single complaint. I haven't heard anybody say that. It wasn't worth 10 bucks. On the contrary, I've heard t- tons of people tell me, oh my God, I was blown away by this information. Plants are amazing. And there's, I've been gardening for over 30 years. You know, it's more than that because I was, I was gardening when I was eight years old at my grandfather's knee. And I learned things in this two hour talk that I had no idea about that have changed forever the way I will handle things like seed saving, but like starting my own plants. I'm doing things totally different this year from just five minutes of this two and a half hour talk. If you don't think that's worth 10 bucks, I don't know what to tell you. Check it out. Alan Booker's amazing plant genetics seminar, Grow Your Own Honey Badger, Super Strains of Plants, custom to your property. And guys, it is so much more than picking which, which, which plant to save seed from. It's so beyond that. In fact, that's not even as important as I used to think it was. So with that, let's go ahead and get on into it. Let's start off with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, the greater government's power, the greater society's division, and more. Uh, is is this whole idea of the suggestion of uh, Marjorie Green? And, you know, uh, I think she got a lot of attention from this. A lot of people wanted to know about this divorce that she's proposing. And her divorce is interesting to talk about, and it tells us something. She thinks there should be a divorce in this country between the the Reds and the Blues. Because we can't get along and we can't come together, and therefore there's only one thing left, uh, you know, uh, that uh, we just separate ourselves. My argument is, why don't we try freedom? You know, a non-violent society where governments aren't allowed to steal from one group and plunder one group for the benefit of another group and always regulate our personal lives, our financial lives. So maybe the divisiveness is deciding how to uh, divvy up the loot and divvy up the power, and it's not going well. What brings people together is the principles of liberty. Uh, freedom, freedom is very popular. Instead of being divisive, as we have a country now, it, it really brings people together. Non-intervention is good. Non-violence is good. Leave people alone. Tolerate. Tolerate other people's views if there's no violence involved. That's the hardest one I think people have. Oh, they do this, this, they believe this, and whatever. Because they want to be authoritarians, and then they jump in and they feel, figure, oh, there's some poverty out there. we got to cure it. We're at the poverty camp. Not from the government. The government's never caused any trouble. They didn't cause the people to have inflation rates at 10 and 15 percent. Oh, no, that, that wouldn't be possible. Hugh Morabi, if Dr. Paul was in charge, how would he end the Ukrainian war? I would stop it quickly. And a president can do that. You know, there was one time, I think under Grover Cleveland, the Congress uh, either was on the verge of it or declared war. He says, they might as well not bother because I'm not for the war. And I'm the commander in chief and I'm not going to send the truce because it's a stupid idea of going to war. So, yes, the president is the commander in chief. Stop the confrontation. And it did, uh, try diplomacy for a change instead of being followed by the military industrial complex and the, the inflationary 
monetary cycles that go on. Uh, and there's, there's just no reason for that. We don't need it. We need people to understand what non-intervention is all about and not getting involved in, in, in these areas where we do not have any business and uh, it's always done on a pretense. Oh, we have to be in Ukraine. We're, we have to save our constitution. We have to save our liberties and we have to pre- preserve peace. And uh, right now, you know, the Russians are destroying everything, but everybody ignores the information is important. Everybody seems to ignore the whole fact that in 2014, Ukraine had an elected president that we kicked out. We participated with NATO and others and committed a coup, which has introduced us to this disaster over there from 2014. We spent, oh, $110 billion. And now what do we do? Our president rushes over there. Oh, oh, we'll give you $500 million more. That's insanity and it's stupid and it's following rules of, uh, of just anti-liberty and anti-constitutional, uh, uh, anti-American. And yet too many people go along with that. As we're looking at that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, tweet, it's not necessarily that we agree with her because I don't really know where she stands. It was very, you know, red state, blue state. And that honestly is, uh, our country is not even like that. If you look at the electoral map, you know, by counties, it's all, it's virtually all red. And you have, you know, the coasts are blue and you have patches of blue here and there. So it's not really as clean as red state, blue state. Uh, but, you know, just as a mental uh, exercise in looking how people reacted to this, you know, the left went bananas, you know, that they're totally against such a thing. How dare you even suggest it? And but you know what? It's it's really interesting because the left hates MAGA so much. They call them names. They call them this, deplorables. <laughs> yet they insist that they must live with them. You can't leave. You must stay here. You know, and and I wonder, well, you know, what, where does this come from? And it has to do with leftist ideology in general. They're all about using government force to remake people. So if there's no one around to remake, who will they tax? Who will they censor themselves? Who are they going to remake themselves? So the leftists need people around that they can regulate with government force. That's why they don't want you to leave. And, you know, the very existence of the United States is due to secession. Uh, we 13 states uh, seceded from England in 1783, and uh, you know we call it American Revolution, but it was not a revolution. That's it's misnamed. The Americans did not uh, seek to overthrow the crown and take over uh, the British government. They wanted secession, so and that's what they got. And the British government was there, so it wasn't a revolution. But that's you know this is semantics. So Marjorie Taylor Greene suggests this idea and all of a sudden the entire left wing they turn into king george no way where do you think you're going you're not going anywhere it's you know it's an interesting as an outsider we're neither red or blue uh to see how these dynamics work so there's a lot to unpack in that relatively short period of three segments uh first of all i completely agree with dr paul the the greater the size of government the greater the intervention of government in the lives of people, and hence greater the division among a society. This is something that's not said often enough, and it is so true. And it, it works like this. My neighbor and I have very divergent beliefs about government and the way things should be. But we have a relatively small government can only do so many things. The source of irritation now between us is, is very small. Because even though he thinks things should be A, and I think things should be B, Basically, the government then is like, well, go see to A and B yourself, 
we can't help you. And so, therefore, we are on our own for most of the important things in our life as far as our values and our ideology, etc. So we don't have to argue with each other. We just go do our own thing. But once the government gets big enough that my neighbor can put down my ability to do B my way, the temptation to use it is like the one ring. It is too great not to be used, especially by those that crave power. And there is no doubt within the political system of the United States that the average leftist craves power more than the average conservative. That doesn't mean the conservative doesn't crave power. It doesn't mean the conservative is not wrong. It's not that the conservative is not guilty of the abuse of power. The left just craves it more. And the danger of that is the old quote, those who do not want power should not pursue it because they will be overrun by those who pursue it that do want the power. And that's part of the issue that we have. And I'm not saying it would be better if the Republicans wanted power more, but when they're up against the leftists who want power the most, and we're talking about the peripherals here, because the, the mainstream of both are the same, they're a uniparty. But that's why, that's why they always win. That's why leftists always win, because they want the power, they're willing to use the power, they're focused on an ideology, and they're focused much longer term than the average conservative is. They want it their way all the time, and if it takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to get it, they'll do it. That's why they went after the education system really in earnest about 70 years ago, and they took it over completely at this point. Next, um, defending America really isn't done by provoking nuclear war, but that's what we're doing. And I, I, I think the most important thing that Ron said in there is that we committed a coup in Ukraine, which in my opinion was an act of war. We also committed another act of war since this all started, this, this, this second phase of this war, which again, the TV won't tell you this, this war is nine years old. Russia's been involved for one, and this war has raged on their border, primarily creating victims of ethnic Russians for eight years before they entered this war. That doesn't make Putin right. It's just what is real. Okay? But we committed that act of war against Ukraine by interfering with their election. I thought we weren't supposed to do shit like that. There's another act of war we committed. We committed it against Russia, but we also committed it against our actual ally, someone we have a formal agreement with, the NATO nation of Germany. We blew up that pipeline. Everybody knows it. Anybody with a clue knew it the day it happened that we did it. Russia gains nothing at all by blowing up their own pipeline. If they don't want shit to go through the pipeline, the other end is in Russia. All they do is don't put stuff in it. That's it. We committed an act of war against our ally, blowing up an asset that their nation had invested in. If Germany blew up a pipeline between us and China, for instance, if such a thing existed... Would it not be an act of war, not just against China, but us? Wouldn't it? We are not the good guys in this, and it's time to stop pretending that we are. It's time to stop pretending that we are. Anyway. And the last part, Chris Rossini's right. Biggest thing you can do to, to withdraw the tensions between people over all the things that people hate each other right now is stop letting government enforce the ideology of either side. With that, let's go on to something totally different, a little bit more useful than our lives right now. Tim Toolman Cook on the difference between conventional and inverter generators. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. 
back with another expert counsel segment for you. So let's dive right in. This week is one I put together. I've been getting a lot of questions on YouTube. What exactly is an inverter generator? Do I need an inverter generator? How do they compare with a standard open frame kind of non-inverter generator and all of that? So I figured I would put together kind of a compiled list so you can guys get an overview of what exactly an inverter generator is. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. First, let's talk about the benefits and what makes an inverter generator an inverter. So, the traditional generator, it works like a car. It has a motor that drives an alternator and sends that dirty dirty power down to the outlets and the panel. So just, you know, straight power off of the alternator. An inverter generator takes the power from the alternator and instead of sending it direct to the panel, then sends it to a rectifier converter, turns it into DC power, then that converter turns it back into AC power with an inverter, which makes it very, very clean power. In a lot of cases, a pure sine wave power, but something with less than typically 3% of total harmonic distortion. If you haven't heard that term before, if you've seen a pure wave, it's just that nice up and down round wave and harmonic distortion makes it look more jaggedy and more lightning-like. So that's how an inverter generator differs from the traditional non-inverter generator. Now, the benefits, of course, Inverter generator are quieter, and there's a few reasons for that. Main one is they typically have a lot more insulation built around them. They tend to have a smaller engine, and they run at a variable speed, which means they only run to the speed that it needs to in order to generate the power. Now, another benefit of an inverter generator is they can be linked together in parallel. And what does that mean? That means that you can take two smaller generators, say two Honda EU2000s, and plug them together. Depending on the brand, they either just need a cable or they need two cables and a box. So what you get with that is you can take two smaller generators, hook them together, and you get to double the wattage output and the, the peak output between them. So the benefit of that is you've got a two is one, one is none situation. So if you have all of your wattage in a single large generator and it dies, guess what? You have no generator. But if you have two smaller generators piggyback together, one of them dies, you can still limp along. So I really like that idea. Plus, it allows you to take the only generator, only enough generator for what you need for your scenario, and it allows you to pick up and carry two smaller generators instead of one big humongous generator. Now, something else I mentioned, inverters run at a variable speed. Traditional generators run at full RPM no matter the load. That's why traditionally you hear, you know, the old rattling of the frame and the deafening noise that comes out of it. Inverter generators are intelligent, and they run up or down depending on the load that it needs. So you're going to get less noise and less fuel usage if you're only using it for a, say, 50% or 75% load. Now, the downside, they are more expensive. So traditionally, an inverter generator tends to cost, you know, a dollar per watt tends to be higher. So I did a comparison just with Harbor Freight generators for the simple fact that uh, they're easy and the, the numbers are there. So the Harbor Freight inverter, 3,500 watt inverter generator works out to 27 cents per available watt on the generator. The same open frame generator, non-inverter, 4,375 watts works out to 11 cents per watt. 
So you're looking at two and a half times the cost for an inverter generator in that instance. Now, Harbor Freight does have an open frame inverter generator you can look at, but this is the traditional kind of enclosed briefcase style that you've seen. Also, with inverters, you tend to get a little bit less power per weight or per size. So again, the 3500 watt inverter from Harbor Freight, 35 watts per pound. The Harbor Freight open frame generator, 4375 watts, you get 41 watts per pound. So not huge, but a, what would that be, about a 20% increase? No, a little less, about a 10% increase. So there you go. So who needs an inverter generator? Well, a couple of things. If noise is utmost concern, so if you're camping or if you want to stay below the radar, you don't want people to, to know who you are, then an inverter generator is definitely what you need. If you're running expensive electronics that require pure power, then an inverter generator is what you need. And if you need a lightweight, easy to carry, because, you know, may maybe you have mobility issues, that sort of thing, then you should probably look at inverter generators. Like I said, more and more companies are making open frame inverter generators, which gives you clean power, but not as much noise suppression on it. So I hope that helps. If you guys have follow-up questions on the benefits of inverter generator or why you should buy a certain type of generator, I'd love to answer it because lately I've been getting some killer questions from you guys, so keep it up. I always love seeing those uh, emails from Jack in my inbox with, hey, question for Tim, and I will take my time and answer them to the best of my ability. So that's it for me this week, guys. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, uh, two quick things, toolmantim.co, run by there. You can find all my social media links. Uh, I started streaming on Rumble and Twitter recently as well. And if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing, or if you're into morale patches, check out patchofthemonth.co, where I send out a humorous, politically incorrect, uh, two-by-three embroidered Velcro-backed morale patch every single month. Ten bucks a month, hundred dollars a year at patchofthemonth.co. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Great stuff from Tim Toolman, as always. This is a little notice here mid-show that I need questions for the expert council. I need to shake the piker tree. I might actually give the expert council the week off next week so that I can build up a, a battery of content. I am like, I have like one segment or two segments from Tim, and I think that's it. I am bottom of the barrel right now on responses, and I can only beat on them so much. If I have questions out to them. Now, some of you guys, Kenberry, have a bunch of questions you haven't answered yet. But a lot of the other ones, they just don't have anything from you guys. So let's get the questions in. TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me the expert you want to ask the question of. You can find out all our experts by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Hover on the About tab and select Meet the Expert Council below it. And you'll see everybody there and we'll take an answer for you. Anyway, with that, let's hear about finding your tribe... From Nicole Awesome Sauce, who, by the way, is never, ever, ever on the Pikers list. Howdy, TSP. This is Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast, coming to you from, well, really close to Atlanta, Georgia. I am on the road, just finished speaking at the Next Steps conference, and it got me to thinking about something. You see, I get a lot of questions about how do I build community? How do I find like-minded people? How can I find my tribe and I know a lot of people who listen to the survival podcast 
Well, we view the world a little bit differently. We see it in terms of solutions. We see the choices we make as important and impactful in the long term. We see a world that has problems, but we haven't given up hope that we can do something to make our lives better no matter what the environment is. So when we're interacting with other folks who are discouraged, angry, or just have completely bought into the system and believe that you have to get along to go along, go along to get along, being around that all the time, being around people who think it's okay for me to decide what you do on your property because, well, for some reason my opinion matters about what kind of livestock you raise or what kind of things you plant or what color you paint your house. People have bought into that mindset because, quote, unquote, it brings up everybody's property values. They're hard to be around sometimes because they don't see what we think is a very logical outcome. So I understand the frustration, but I also like to show as much love to the people around me as possible. And I just need encouragement sometimes, too. And I'm thinking about this because I came to a conference full of people I've never met before in a slightly different network, but also motivated by freedom. And it is a network I probably would not typically have gone and interacted with. But I thought, you know what, Nicole, get out of your bubble, man. Go meet some people. And I did. And I have found some amazing doers at this conference. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. If you're feeling alone, if you're feeling like these online groups you're in aren't working, if you're feeling like there's nobody near you, I guarantee you there's somebody within a mile or two of you who's feeling the same way who you just haven't met yet. You know how you meet people? You get out and you go places. You find something that interests you, whether it be winemaking, freedom, reducing taxes, medical freedom, self-reliance, self-defense, homesteading, something. And you go look and you say, what's going on in the area? Bitcoin meetup, anything. And then here's the hard part. This is where you, this is where you commit to it or don't. You leave the house and you go out and you meet people and you have an open mind and you don't jump to the fight if they don't agree with you completely and start, start talking with your ears and getting to know people. And next thing you know, you'll find yourself at an event right next to somebody who is the person you need to meet. That is how we started the GSD crew, which is Get Shit Done in Tennessee, where we go to people's houses and we knock out projects all as a group because we all like each other. It started because two people met at an event, realized that we didn't live too far from each other, and started getting together and doing things as a community. And from there, it has grown first to tens, then hundreds, and now thousands of people who get together all over the country to do the same thing. And it's super inspiring, and it's super empowering. And every time I have one of those conversations with somebody who's dead inside, who hasn't woken up yet, I know I got my people. I know I got my people. Speaking of events, if you want to check one out that's pretty cool, head on over to selfrelianceFestival.com. We're having a big old prepper jam session. It's homesteaders. It's people into self-reliance. It's people who want to build a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. That's right. We're all getting together in Camden, Tennessee, March 25th, 26th. You can see Paul Wheaton speak. You can see C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. 
I'll be talking on smart homesteading. We've got John Willis from Special Operations Equipment. We've got Dr. Ken Berry talking. He may be talking about farming and not the proper human diet, which ought to be a really interesting one to tap into. We've got lots of cool people speaking. Tag from Life Done Free. That's all over selfrelianceFestival.com. Come out in person. Find your tribe, man, because your tribe is who has your back in the hard times, and your tribe is who's there to share your successes. Make it a great week. I'll add to that just a little bit. Uh, whether it's one of my events here, whether it's a self-reliance festival, whether it's just something small or large in your area that makes it a little easier to get to, go. But the big thing is go and talk to people. Um, when we have people here, sometimes you notice that there are people that aren't really engaging with others. They're shy, they're introverted, whatever. And we always try, you know, it's hard with the number of people we have here, but I always try to kind of walk around and, and notice who those people are, say a little bit to them, but also like get other people to talk to them because it's not all about me hosting the event. It's about people connecting the way that, that Nicole's talking about. And I know that some of y'all, you'll go to an event, but then it's like you're, you're, you hold back from talking to people. To be blunt, it, it's not a high school dance. No one's going to reject you. And you might talk to somebody for a couple seconds and go, and I'll tell you what does happen. Sometimes you talk to somebody and go, gee, I wish I wouldn't have talked to that person because they kind of attach to you and they're, they're not your tribe, right? They need another tribe. And just go talk to somebody else. Keep doing it. And you'll be surprised because I think the most valuable thing you can gain from going to one of these events is the network that you form. It's great to go listen to speakers like myself or Nicole or John or Ken. And that's great to meet those people and put them into your true in real life network too. But you know, you're at an event, there's 100, 200, 300, 500 people. Odds are there's 10 or 12 there that would make really good additions to your virtual tribe. And you might find some of them are close enough to be in your IRL, your in real life tribe as well. But it takes making that little bit of effort. And let me, let me give you, like, I understand people are like, well, Jack, you're an extrovert. First of all, I'm not. You just think I am because my job requires me to shift into that role. And being in sales and marketing most of my life required me to shift into that, ro rail, that role. If I was an extrovert, I wouldn't enjoy standing for eight hours alone in a tree stand waiting for a deer to come and still be happy when one doesn't show up. Okay? Just to be blunt, I am not Gregorius. I don't go into a party and, like, take over the whole place and become, like, that guy, right? Uh, I, you have to do it. But, but in having to adapt to that, okay, I developed certain techniques to be able to do it. And one is the ability to start a conversation. And the beauty of starting a conversation in one of these environments is simple. There's a formula for it that never fails. It is simply, hi, where are you from, right? What, 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 is, what is really interesting to you about what we're doing right now? And then just continue the conversation from there. See, the big thing that people have is like a, a holdback, right, from, from starting these conversations is I'm not sure what to say. You're both at an event. Well, where'd you come here? You know, what's your name? Where'd you come from? Right? Who's with you? You know, if there's somebody with them, it, you know, ask. I'll tell you a secret to being a good conversationalist. Nobody's bored talking about themselves. So ask them without sounding like you're probing them like an FBI Fed or something, and, and let the conversation go from there. You'll probably find, they'll say, well, where are you from? Well, what are you doing here? And who'd you come with? And, and all that. And There's all kinds of stuff going on. What do you think is the most interesting thing? Just, just start the conversation 
lead with the potential relationship, see where it goes. And if it, it turns out you talk to somebody and they're not the kind of person that you mesh with, it's okay. Go talk to somebody else. They'll go talk to somebody else. And, and these relationships are the single most valuable asset that you can acquire at these events. Just my thoughts. And I've used that to make friends at events. And I've made that, I've used that to make contacts with people sitting in a bar at a hotel that turned into half million dollar deals. Okay? And it turns out the guy is like director of communications for, you know, some giant company or something. And that's why he's stuck at the same hotel bar that I was at. That, that's a legitimate thing. So don't be afraid to just say, hi, what's your name? Where'd you come in from? And when they say, well, I came in from, oh, so you're local, or, oh, wow, you guys really had to drive a long way. Oh, no, you flew? Oh, okay. You see, it's just, humans naturally communicate if we get out of the way of ourselves. And understand that if you're at an event like this, you have a lot in common with the people around you, always. So be comfortable with it. I know that's easier said than done, but it's only easier said than done, folks, until you do it one time. Next up, let's get some advice on homeschooling and understand that sometimes when people ask for advice, they really don't want advice. They want to point hole, poke holes in the solutions and how to handle that from Amy Digman, specifically in regard to homeschooling. Hey, everybody, this is Amy Digman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast, and today I am back with a reminder to homeschooling families to not let other people steer your homeschool. It is really easy to look for advice about homeschooling, especially when things get tough or you run into a snag or things are hard. It's also really easy to get distracted by all the super cool ideas out there because there are so many cool things to do as a homeschooling family. I want you to keep in mind that homeschooling is about your home and your kids and your family. It's not about me. It's not about Jack. It's not about some famous homeschool author. It's not about a certain curriculum website or some blogger. And you're probably listening to this thinking, Amy, you are on the Survival Podcast as the, the homeschool expert council member because you can give advice. And you're right. But seriously, I want you to take everything that I say with a bucket of salt, not just a grain, but a bucket of salt, because some things I say are not going to work for you. And there is someone else that you should be asking first. And that's what this is about. When you're dealing with, is this thing we're doing in homeschooling working? Or we've run into a snag and, and how do I feel about it? And what are we going to do about it? The person you should be asking is your kid. Okay? I bring this up because there were times in our homeschool adventures when I definitely took the advice of someone else. And I neglected to ask my kids what they thought about it. I just impl implemented the change and I never asked them. I ended up adding or cutting something that never needed to be added or cut that my kids did not want added or cut. Sometimes I would create problems that weren't there. And then I felt like I needed to solve them because I believed that the problems were there, usually because of something I was reading about homeschooling or something another homeschooling parent said about homeschooling. And so I believe there was a problem in our family or the way we were doing things, and there wasn't. But I thought I had this thing I had to solve. Like read aloud time. My kids and I loved read aloud time, even past the time when my kids were old enough to be reading the books that we were reading 
we still would sit down and have read aloud time. We'd get our coffee, we'd get our hot chocolate, we'd get our blankets, we'd hang out on the couch, and I would read a book that we had chosen for the month. And I remember somebody telling me, mm, it's kind of weird. Why are you still reading to your kids if they can read these books yourselves? Why are, why are you reading to your tween sons? So I cut it. You guys, my kids did not want me to cut that from our day. They loved read aloud time. And I just listened to this other person who was, who said, I don't know why you're doing that. And then I started to second guess myself and question. And I thought, oh, you're right. That's kind of weird that we're still reading. And I cut it. Later, I found out my kids never wanted that to happen. Why did I do that? There were times that I changed the way we were doing math because I believed there was a problem or I believed my kids wanted something different. They didn't. There was a period when I made things less structured and I kind of turned life into a free-for-all because it sounded really cool to me. And I found out later, <laughs> my kids really like structure. <laughs> Sometimes we think things sound cool. We think things sort of make sense to us or someone we really admire says this is the way to do things. And so we change what's happening in our homeschool and we're creating problems. We think that we are bringing a solution to the table but there was never a problem that needed to be fixed. I kind of feel like, now that I look back, I kind of feel like a lot of our journey has been my kids waiting to see what their harebrained mom came up with next. And then they sit there waiting for the dumpster fire to begin <laughs> while they sip their coffee or their tea and eventually ask me, why why'd you decide to change that in the first place? Like, what was the problem? When you are dealing with something in your homeschool that you think needs to be changed or you think you have an issue or you want to do things different, ask your kids. Now, take this with however many grains of salt you need to for where you are in life and who your kids are. Because some kids, when they're asked, should we change this? Should we stop doing this? Should we add this? Do you want to do this anymore? They might just go with the option that means less work or more video games or unlimited pizza or whatever. But I, honestly... When we run into issues with homeschooling, we're constantly asking homeschooling advice from a lot of people who are in the same place as we are, punting through the adventure just the same as we are, and we're forgetting to ask the kids who are actually the ones being homeschooled what their two cents are about the issue. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't ask the opinions of other adults? No, not at all. It's always good to have a second opinion or a different perspective, and it's really cool that now... We have a lot of homeschoolers we can talk to. 30 years ago, there was not this open conversation with all these different homeschoolers, right? It wasn't as easy to get advice from other homeschoolers. We still had people who weren't going out during the day because they didn't want to be caught homeschooling. But for an issue that involves our kids, whether it's schedules or curriculum or what's working or what's not working or future plans for your homeschool, how you want to set things up, etc. The first people we should be asking is our kids. Sometimes parents are really good at making up problems that don't exist or looking for issues when there aren't any. It is our job as parents to try and stay one step ahead of the game, right? To be on the lookout for things that we can do better. But sometimes we talk to so many outside people and we get so far ahead of ourselves that we end up imagining scenarios and making decisions about things that our kids don't even see as an issue that needs to be solved.
So that is my advice, ironically, for you today. When you're running into snags or difficult times or just are wondering if you need to change things up in your homeschool, don't create an issue that's not there. And make sure you talk to your kids. Make sure you send in more homeschooling and parenting and family life questions to Jack for me to answer. You can listen to me on the Farmish Kind of Life podcast. You can probably get that on just about any podcatcher that's out there. And remember to head to Amazon and check out my Homeschool Highway series. People seem to really be enjoying it. So thanks for your time. I hope this helped and have a great day. So this actually hits another thing for me with how we treat kids instead of asking them, about what they like or what they want to learn or what they want to do. And that is talking about them while they're there like they're not, as though you're talking about somebody that's not even in the room with you. I, I, I don't like that. I think that we need to understand, like, one, there was a show that my wife really liked, and I, I kind of liked it okay, and it just got worse and worse as it progressed. But it was uh, Grey's Anatomy, a hospital late night, you know, nighttime soap opera type thing. And it was okay. I could, I could watch it with her. And it just got more and more woke to a point where even she wouldn't watch it anymore. But there is a character in it who is like a, a pediatrics. Uh, I think she was on babies or something like, like a pediatric surgeon or something like that. And uh, she refused to let people call the children like infants or babies. The term she used was tiny humans. And I think that it's it, it's important that we become aware of that that we have tiny humans like these are these are full people and they should be treated as full people and that doesn't mean that we don't have rules for them or whatever uh, or we let them do whatever they want no or no structure like we are born in a captivity and that's great because we wouldn't survive a day without it okay when an infant is born if they weren't born in a, if you set it free in a field it'll die or something will kill it and eat it right so it's it, it's in, it's good that we have that structure around us but we also need to accept that feedback and don't talk don't talk about them as if they're not there and and use their names right when we talk about them and ask them their opinion even if we say okay i've, I've heard your opinion and we're not going to do that right and make the decision it's still to feel heard is inherently necessary for a human to feel like they're being treated fairly. And also to do things like, when I was a kid, this was one of the things I hated. Somebody would give me something, and I hadn't had time to inhale, and you have a grandmother or somebody saying some shit to you like, tell them thank you. Don't do that shit to your children. They are a fully realized human being. And if they should have said thank you and they didn't, here's how you handle this. Like one human to another. You take them aside and say, hey, so-and-so just did this thing for you. That was nice. You really should have told them thank you. Do it where you're out of earshot of the third party so that child now has the opportunity to go out and correct the thing on their own instead of being talked down to. I don't know if you realize how much we're talking down to kids. Well, hey, Johnny, here's five bucks. Tell them thank you. How would you feel? How would you feel if you were out with a friend or a spouse or a sibling or a brother or your dad or your mom and you went to a restaurant and the waitress did something really beyond what was necessary for you and instead of that person turning to the waitress and saying thank you because they were party to it too, they turn to you and say, now tell them thank you. Wouldn't you be like, what the hell is wrong with you? That's how your kids feel. It is very important that while we maintain the role of parent, we understand that our goal as a parent is to not need to be one anymore. It is the job of working yourself out of a job. You'll always be their mom or dad or grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, whatever. You'll always be that. 
But the parenting part, where you're actually making decisions on their behalf, it has to ebb away slowly every year so that by the time they're an adult in reality, they can behave like one. It starts by treating them with respect when they're very, very young. That may be a perspective you've never heard before, but I implore you not just to tell them thank you thing. When you speak on behalf of your children, think if you really need to do so, or do you need them to give them the opportunity to do it for themselves? And one more time, I'm not saying not to correct improper behavior. I'm saying to think about how you do it so that you pay them respect and you teach them how to do it because you won't be there to say tell them thank you in just a few years. With that, let's move on. I got a question for Jeff Lawton about head pressure with dams on flat land. My prairie landscape is flat, flat, flat. <laughs> if you put a marble down, it doesn't roll. I have dug swales, no, I've dug sloughs to hold water. We have 60% clay, but nothing for head pressure. Any ideas? Current thought is wind power to move water around. Traditionally, it's either a water tower or wells here. I must confess, I have a mental challenge wrapping my, head, uh, my brain around dams and actual flowing water. Well, Lynn, I suggest you take a laser level, no, not a laser level, you take a farmer's level, a little eye level, and look at the horizon. And the horizon that's lowest below your level line is the one that's falling. So if you look at the horizon on your flat, flat, flat landscape, the one that's the lowest below your level line on your site level, and the one that's the highest, that's uphill, that's downhill, it's going to flow that way. If you put a swale up, it's going to catch enormous amounts of water, even behind the trench. The trench is going to have to be below grade. The mound only has to be a little bit above grade, half a metre or a metre, or hold you half a mile of water. And it'll definitely rehydrate your landscape. You can, you can key line between or whatever you like. Dams are the same. When you build a dam, you're going to have huge amounts of material left over. You'll be able to build islands peninsulas, chinampas, and really exciting windbreak mounds of all kinds of gorgeous patterns. You really diversify that landscape from what is at the moment reasonably plain into an exciting landscape because I'll guarantee that I expect you have quite a lot of wind. So you're right about windmills. Windmills will pump water underground right up to water towers, give you that head pressure you lack. But that's one of the only things you lack is head pressure. Now, if you get a bit of sun, you can also pump water with solar up to those water towers. So if it's not windy, it's sunny. If it's not sunny, it's windy. You can pump with wind at night, sun in the day. If it's sunny, you can get that up in the air. You can dig your swells and pull back, hold back lots of water, soak all that in, condition the land easily with, with your key line systems. You can put in dams that have the most gorgeous shapes because there's nothing restricting you putting shoreline shapes in, islands, peninsulas, chinampas, all kinds of things, and you still have enough material left over to build really beautiful shelter belts. So I don't know exactly which climate you're in. Um, it's prairie, you say prairie, so it could be quite cold in the winter, so you could put great shelter, great microclimate, facing water, all kinds of, I can see it, lovely. Okay, so I hope that helps you. Um, Get your brain around the dams and the swells. See, I'm going to agree. Over any significant distance, unless you're out at the salt flats or something, there there is elevation change even if you don't see it. And you can try to work with that elevation change. But I, I, I am in agreement with Jeff that this is probably, if you need pressure, 
a place for some form of a water tower. And I think what's really important to understand about doing something like that is, is something as simple as a direct drive uh, pump using a single solar panel that just barely moves water up high enough to get into an elevated position. It doesn't have to be elevated very much either. Uh, with something like a 1,500-gallon poly tank, and you want to make sure that's a lot of weight. Let's just let's do the math really quick in Jack's brain. Water's like 8.33 pounds to the gallon. Let's call it 8.3 1,550-gallons. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,800-ish. You can check it for yourself, but it's something like that. Uh, that's more than six freaking tons. So if you're going to build something to elevate that much water, think about it. Uh, it may be easier to build several things that are elevating. You know, it depends on how much water you need. Maybe just some 300-gallon-ish uh, IBCs or something like that in different locations. Because none of these setups have to be expensive. So you could actually have uh, uh, different ones from different uh, slows or downs if you did that. And again, we only need a little bit of elevation to actually move water. That direct drive pump could then be sending water up into whatever containment vessel you have. There could be a float valve on that, so it just doesn't it just doesn't do anything when it's full, so it doesn't overflow. And what you can do is set up where if it's not pumping up, it bypasses and makes water circulate. So it's doing something while it has the energy to do it, right? And you would not really have to think about this very much, because even if it was just a trickle of water into your vessel, it's going to stay full across time, unless you're constantly using it. So there's, there's a way to do this, and there's, there's probably more ways than that to do this. And just some thoughts on that one. Moving on, let's hear about earthquakes from Dr. Bones. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. You know, recently a 7.8 magnitude earthquake caused massive damage and loss of life in parts of Turkey and Syria. Over 22,000 deaths are confirmed so far with more than 60,000 people injured. This makes the earthquake even worse than the massive one that caused so much damage in Fukushima, Japan, I don't know if you remember that one, that was in 2011. We haven't had anything on that level in the United States, but you still should know, Family Medic, what to do in the case of one. I know and you know that hurricanes are more significant for residents of the Gulf and East Coast of the United States, but the West Coast and even some areas of the Midwest should be concerned about the possible risk of an earthquake event. Some of our most populated areas are actually near fault lines. A fault line is a fracture in the volume of base rock. This is an area where earth movement releases energy that can cause major surface disruptions. We call this movement a seismic wave. The strength of an earthquake has been historically measured using the Richter scale. The measurement from 0 to 10 or more identifies the magnitude of tremors at a certain location. Each increase of one magnitude increases the strength by a factor of 10. The highest registered earthquake was the Great Chilean Earthquake of 1960, a 9.5 on the Richter scale. Most quakes, however, are less than 2.0 and occur every day in one place or another. These are unlikely to be noticed by the average person. Now, there's a newer measurement, the Moment Magnitude Scale, which calculates each point of magnitude as releasing more than 30 times the energy of the previous one. It's considered more accurate than the Richter scale, especially for higher magnitude earthquakes. So a moment magnitude 7 quake is 30 times as powerful than a magnitude 6. 
If the energy is released offshore, a tsunami or tidal wave may be generated. In Fukushima, Japan, a very powerful offshore earthquake, an 8.9 magnitude, and tsunami wreaked havoc in 2011, causing major damage, loss of life, and meltdowns in local nuclear reactors. All told, there have been hundreds of thousands of people killed by earthquakes in the last, well, 20 years or so, including the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, which theoretically took the lives of almost 300,000 people, which is, to me, pretty incredible because I don't remember hearing that much about it way back then. If they're major, earthquakes are especially dangerous due to their unpredictability. There's usually little notice given beforehand. That means that you should make sure that every member of your family knows what to do no matter where they are when an earthquake occurs. That's important because unless it happens in the dead of night, it's unlikely you're all going to be in the house together. Planning ahead will give you the best chance of gathering your people together and making the best of a bad situation. Now, what do you need to be actually prepared for earthquakes? These are some of the things that I think are very important. Non-perishable foods and water, of course, clean water, drinkable water, power sources, alternative shelters. You might need tents if the buildings that you live in are unstable. Of course, you'll need medical items. You'll need clothing appropriate to the weather you're in. Uh, fire extinguishers in case there's a fire in the building, uh, a means of communication, you need to have money and you should probably have cash because you can't depend on credit or debit cards if the power's down, and individual tools like an adjustable wrench so you can turn off your gas and water. You need to figure out where you're going to meet in the event of tremors. What's the school system's plan for earthquakes? Will you be able to find your kids? I mean, that, I think, is a pretty important question. If you're in an earthquake zone, you should make sure that they can easily reach you and know what to do. It would be appropriate to always get a get-home bag put together at work or in the car. Some food, liquids, a pair of sturdy, comfortable shoes are useful items to have available in case you have to make it home by foot due to road damage. Once you're home, it's especially important to know where your gas, electric, and water main shutoffs are. Make sure that everyone has an idea of how to turn them off if there's a leak or an electrical short. Know where the nearest medical facility is, but be aware that you might be on your own. Medical responders are going to be overwhelmed, may not get to you quickly or at all. Aren't you glad you were medically prepared? Look around your house for fixtures like chandeliers and bookcases that might not be stable enough to withstand an earthquake. Flat screen TVs, especially large ones, could easily be toppled by moderate tremors. Be sure to check out kitchen and pantry shelves and the stability of anything that might be hanging over, let's say, the headboard of your bed like a work of art. So what should you do when the tremors start? If you're indoors, you need to get under a table, desk, or something else solid and hold on. If cover isn't available, you should stand against an inside wall. Don't try to use elevators. They might malfunction. You should stay clear of windows, shelves, and kitchen areas. While the building's shaking, don't try to run out. You could easily fall downstairs or get hit by falling debris. That's going to be a hard thing to honestly stop from doing, but that's indeed the general recommendation. We had always thought that you should stand in the doorway because of the frame's sturdiness, but it turns out that in modern homes, doorways apparently aren't any more solid than any other part of the structure. Now, once the initial tremors are over, go outside. Once there, stay as far out in the open as you possibly can, away from power lines, chimneys, or anything else that could possibly fall on top of you. You might be in your automobile when the earthquake hits. Now, if that's the case, get out of traffic as soon as possible. Other drivers are likely to be less level-headed than you are. Don't stop your car under bridges, trees, overpasses, power lines, or light posts. Stay in your vehicle while the tremors are active. After the event, one thing you should be concerned about is gas leaks. Make sure you don't use your camp stoves, lighters, or even matches until you're certain that all is clear. Even a match can ignite a spark that could lead to an explosion. 
If you turn the gas off, you might consider letting the utility company turn it back on. Now, don't count on telephone service after a natural disaster. Telephone companies only have enough lines to deal with about 20% of total call volume at any one time. It's likely all lines will be occupied. Interestingly enough, this doesn't seem to apply to text. You'll have a better chance to communicate by texting than by voice due to the wavelength used. This used to be cutting-edge advice, by the way, but now everybody texts. If you have old folks who aren't savvy about texting, well, take a moment to teach them. It's not rocket science. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget that the Members Support Brigade gets a discount off orders of books, medical and dental kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Check out our entire line and increase your family's level of medical preparedness. You'll be glad you did. Great advice. And what I like about that segment is great advice for natural disasters in general, and there are a lot of things that can cause, like, buildings to fall down that aren't necessarily earthquakes. Any sort of collapsed environment uh, may be less... Uh, widespread, but has the same uh, dangers and what have you. Uh, moving on, I want to talk to you guys today about something I'm watching emerge, uh, and I'm hearing it stated in different ways, but here's the basic narrative that is going to become very prevalent in the mainstream media in regard to all of the things that are becoming just accepted about all the lies that went along with COVID, and that is you were right for the wrong reasons. So masks is the one where this is happening the most. It, is, it, it seems to be the case that even the most diehard MSM, now not the totally brainwashed idiots that are still walking around with masks on. By the way, there's a video out today of Elon Musk wearing a mask surrounded by security. I, I don't know what that was about. Um, come on, Elon, get with the times, bro. Um, but in general, except for the people who have been totally mentally destroyed by this, People are not just not masking. They're accepting the fact the masking mandates didn't do a thing. So the mandates didn't work. And what they're saying was, well, you were, you were right for the wrong reasons. All the science at the time indicated, and it didn't play out that way. But see, the thing is, all the science didn't indicate. How many times have you heard me say this? I haven't memorized from saying it. There were 12 RCTs. That's a random controlled trial. The gold standard of scientific research done. Asking the question, does mass masking slow down the spread of viral respiratory diseases? 12 of them. The first of them was done in 1947, shortly after World War II. The last one was done in 2019, about, it, it, the report came out about three months before COVID began. Twelve of them. And they all concluded it doesn't work. They all concluded, one more time, they all effing concluded it doesn't work. So when we said it didn't work, we were the ones with science on our side. I don't care how many hamsters you lock in a cage and put a cloth around the cage, the actual empirical study looking at real data had already been done a dozen effing times. There was no reason to believe that it would be effective or work, and yet they did. But now the response is, we admit it didn't work, but we were, you were right for the wrong reasons. You should have still trusted us. Right in the middle of it all, kind of at the peak of it, a study came out, and they actually claimed it proved that masking worked. It showed less than a 0.3% variance between areas with mandates and areas without mandates, which is within the margin of error. It showed less than a percentage of different 
when you had places with no lockdowns and no mask mandates versus areas with both. So their own study, where they claimed a 0.3% variance proved what they said was right all along, actually disproved it. Right there, we were done a year and a half ago by their own study, which they claimed proved their success. But you should have still trusted them. But let's keep going. See, if we were only right about masks, then maybe you could say we were right for the wrong reasons. We could just ignore the 12 RCTs, you know. Maybe maybe things were different with COVID. Maybe it did uh, not go into vapor and aerosol, but actually only in droplets, which was a lie, which we knew from the beginning when they were claiming it didn't even spread by, there was only person-to-person contact because China said so, so Fauci believed him after funding their bullshit, right? He didn't believe it. He knew he was lying when they said it. They knew this was an airborne transmitted virus because any virus like this would be, okay? So they were lying. Well, let's just say we were only right about the mask. Okay, fine. Maybe we were right for the wrong reasons. What else did we say, though? We said that early treatment was key. Now, they can keep trying to hide this. They just threw a doctor out of a meeting at a hospital for him simply saying, hey, I've used ivermectin on my patients, and it worked. They threw him out. They had the police grab him and escort him to the door. But this does work, and we do have the proof that it works. Quercetin and zinc work when used in combination, along with vitamin D. We have empirical studies where they take a look at the data collected, and we know that almost every single person heavily hit with COVID was hit. Uh, it also had a huge deficiency in vitamin D. So we were right about that. We know this. We were right about that, too. We said the vaccine would be ineffective because you're dealing with something that mutates so quickly. We were right about that. We were right about the fact that the vaccine would be ineffective at preventing disease, Right. Well, they claim, eventually they just said, okay, well, yeah, you're right about that, but it prevents severe injury and death, which is also bullshit. It's also bullshit. But we also were right about what? It wouldn't prevent the spread of the disease. They've admitted that now. They've admitted that the vaccine mandates didn't, what they're saying is they did no good. But what they're not saying is they did harm. They did lots of harm. We were right about that. We were right about adverse reactions being higher than it would be in a typical vaccine. The data supports this. We were right about that, too. And there's no way to make it go away. I don't care how much you say otherwise. It is not normal for over 1,200 professional athletes to collapse on the field in a single year because the data of the history says that it's not. We knew that it would have adverse reactions beyond what is typical because we knew that the basic science that a, that a person with a 10th grade education would be able to comprehend if they were not subject to Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity and mass hysteria, that when you take an unproven new technology like mRNA, which was never designed, says the people that created it, to be used for mass vaccination. It was never designed to be used for mass vaccination. It was designed to tailor a vaccination that wasn't really a vaccination. It was immune-boosting therapy to specific individuals. This was designed to do the following. Bill has cancer. We extract Bill-specific cancer, and we build an immune-boosting therapy using mRNA technology that specifically targets Bill's exact kind of cancer. We knew this. If you didn't, I told you this in the beginning, 
So we were right about that too. If you take an unknown tech and you apply it to something it was never intended to apply to, that you will get serious adverse reactions. You don't know what you're going to do. Subject to the large number law, you're going to impact people. We said, I said, this will have a negative impact on fertility. And I even said when I said I have no proof, this one, I, maybe I was right for the wrong reason on this one. Maybe you can give me one. I said, I don't know why I think this, but I think this. Okay, so how many is that? Seven, eight key points. If you're right on them all, you're not right for the wrong reasons. They were wrong for the wrong reasons. They refused to look at science. They refused to listen to doctors and scientists who said, you're wrong. They refused to allow doctors to use the privileges that their license gives them the right to use. A doctor has been given a license. They have gone through years and years and years of study. They have gone through boards to get their certification. They are allowed to prescribe any medication they want to their patients within certain guidelines. But saying, well, because this medication is not approved for this specific illness, is not one of the guidelines. Doctors prescribe medication off-label all the effing time. I was censored on YouTube multiple times for saying things that today are known to be fact. I was censored the last time I was for COVID for saying things that were all proven fact by the time I said them and I cited sources like the CDC and they still shut me down. We weren't right for the wrong reasons. And I want you to, the reason I'm covering this day, because if you haven't noticed, I've kind of let COVID go into history. I'm not going to, there's people that they built their whole career on anti-COVID stuff, right? So they can't let it go. They're going to keep digging that dead horse up and beating the shit out of it. I'm telling you this now because of what the implication of what they're saying really means. Even when you're right, you're wrong if you don't trust us and follow and comply with what we tell you to. It is the most draconian New World Order shit that has ever existed. It is more draconian than the government described in 1984 because it's more overt. It is the illusion of freedom coupled with a, a concept of whatever we say is right even when we're wrong. And even when you're right, when you disobey, you're wrong. It is sadistic. I am back to it is the relationship that you see somebody in and you tell them they need to get out of it. It is the oppressive, abusive husband who beats his wife and won't let her leave and won't let her talk to anybody and locks her up and tells her what she can wear when she goes out. And when it turns out he's completely wrong, and even when he's willing to admit it, he says, you should have obeyed me anyway. It is that sick. And you're going to hear it. You're going to hear I don't know how many ways you can say you were right for the wrong reasons, but we're going to hear them all. And we're going to hear about every point and more. Because I, I think the last time I got censored on YouTube for this, I went through 30 points that were proven correct. 30. You can't be right 100%, 30 out of 30, and be right for the wrong reason. If it was one, flip a coin. It's a 50-50 shot. That's what they're betting on. They're betting on that the American people are so stupid, they'll look at each one of these points that way. Oh, yeah. Well, and they'll, they'll, they'll slowly admit it. Right now they're admitting the vaccine mandates didn't work, 
and the mask mandates didn't work. You notice they didn't say that the vaccine didn't work. That's, that's why the mandate, but they don't say it that way. And they'll leak it out one at a time because eventually they have to put this behind them. So as it keeps coming up, they'll keep doing it that way until it stops coming up and you dumbass sheep end up chasing a new news cycle. That's what they're doing. You were right for the wrong reason. You know what? You don't get a hundred on the test being right for the wrong reason. Unless you did what? You cheated. In essence, it's what we did. We did cheat. We looked at the actual science. We looked at the science, and we also looked at what was known, and therefore what was unknown. You can look at the past and say, what's most likely to happen when you do this? In history, when you take a technology, a medical technology that's never been used before, and you use it in mass, you're going to have adverse reactions to it in a higher number than what you would expect. We already knew that. We weren't right for the wrong reasons. All of them were wrong for the wrong reasons. None of it ever had to happen. It was all based on lies. And, final thing, if you trust them about anything ever again, you deserve what you get. It doesn't mean they're not always telling, they're, they're always lying. It doesn't mean they're always lying. Everything should be assumed to be a lie until verified, though. And if it doesn't make sense, it's probably a lie. And if it sounds like it might be true, it's still more likely to be a lie or a partial lie than not. You cannot accept them. I implore you that if you've never heard of the term before, I want you today, I'm not going to tell you what it means if you haven't already heard me talk about it. I want you to search Gelman Amnesia, G-E-L-L hyphen M-A-N-N, Amnesia. Let me spell amnesia for you. I'll give you that. A-M-N-E-S-I-A. Gelman Amnesia. Go look that up and take it to heart. By the way, the source of the term is Michael Crichton, the guy that wrote Jurassic Park uh, and a bunch of other really cool stuff. Anyway, with that, I will let my blood pressure come down and wrap up for you this week. I really enjoyed this week. I think this was a great week of the Survival Podcast. I got another great week lined up for you starting next week. Don't miss it. I got some great stuff coming. Hope you have a fan freaking tastic weekend. Don't let all of this stuff we talk about get you down. Get out in the garden. Put your hands in the soil. Spring is coming. Work on those projects. Build those things. Teach those kids. Work on your relationships at home and externally. Find your tribe. Build, build, and build. Build while the world crumbles around you. Because what's going to happen is as the world crumbles, eventually when enough of it crumbles, people are going to start building. You have the greatest head start in humanity. Make it happen. Make it a great weekend. I'll catch you on Monday. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way